and Dean Trottier for Discussion of Truth coming in at the 4.07 mark, Eastern Standard Time. I'll bring that mic a little bit closer here. Uh, still broadcasting remotely, um, and uh, that is uh, has been a good thing for Discussion of Truth, uh, considering the, uh, well, look, uh, I think more than ever, Americans need to define, and not only define what their freedom is, but they need to regain freedom in their own right, because those things, their rights, if you will, are being stripped away at an unprecedented rate and level. Uh, last week on program, we hosted... Uh, Mariam Henning. Mariam is a native of Montreal. She currently and has been in LA for quite a while. Um, and she came together and collaborated with Dr. Hall in Miami Beach. Um, Dr. Hall has been outspoken regarding the Zika virus. It's now going on about four years ago. He has a lawsuit. Um, I believe it may have been thrown out is what he said. Uh, but he had a lawsuit going against Fauci. Uh, that would be, yes, the infamous Dr. Fauci. Um, and he is outspoken, obviously, as a Cornell-trained, I believe that's where he did his residency. You have to go back and check some of these, some of these items, but uh, obviously incredibly well-educated and very ethical. He's joined the program twice. The second time being in collaboration with Mariam last week. Um, uh, a very ethical uh, medical doctor he is. And uh, that Zika virus, yes, was a threat. But the bigger threat was the pesticide that was used. And so why was it allowed to be used and sprayed? What type of testing took place? Uh, me personally, I was opposed to it and suggested a, uh, a protest on, uh, public land and a former JAG lawyer, uh, saying her sources without identifying those sources. And this is somebody that I had, I had gotten incredibly close to, um, you know, uh, I, I, I like going out to dinner, chatting extensively about this. So the sources were that I'd be tried as a terrorist. It, it was taken out of context, perhaps, but I didn't take it out of context. I meant serious business, and uh, that is how this program began. Anyway, so last week, Mary Henning uh, and Dr. Hall collab collaborated, uh, and the second hour, we have been doing two and three hours of discussions of truth for the past three or four months now. Um, typically for the initial three years of the program, um, I would do one hour on Wednesdays. And so the website states 5 p.m. Eastern Standard. Um, that is when I come on air. But it's obviously, pardon me, it's obviously earlier than that. And um, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be at 3, three o'clock uh, start. Um, that is just because demand has increased. Um, so, uh, anyway, uh, 
the hour following Merriam, we hosted um, Temple Grandin, Dr. Temple Grandin, who is an autistic uh, PhD um, from the University of Illinois, and she currently teaches at uh, Colorado State. Uh, an incredible uh, message that she delivered to the program and for listeners. And uh, Claire Danes played her in an HBO movie. You definitely should, if you have children that have autism, if you have anyone that you know, if you yourself have autism, um, the message that Temple drives, from my perspective of incredible meaning, is don't let those barriers be a challenge. Don't let them be a, uh, a barrier that stops those goals from being achieved. The week prior to that, Gerald Posner joined the program to discuss um, multiple items, but the focus, of course, intent was being on his latest book, Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. He's got a JD from UC Hastings, Berkeley. Uh, he won the Micklejohn Award while a student there. It's a debating championship. Um, and uh, apart from being a summa cum laude graduate and Phi Beta Kappa, he was a former Wall Street attorney and th- and happens to be a three-time New York Times bestselling author. One of the books, and we didn't go into it much, but one of the books I urge you to get into uh, by Posner is God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. Uh, I continuously and often uh, urge people to look through the system that we have, this capitalistic system, of course, Das Kapital, uh, written by Karl Marx, um, like this cap- looking at this capitalistic system that we have inherited and continue to control our lives. Well, where does it really root from? In modern ancient history, if you will, uh, well, that would be Rome. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And so how many of these manipulative strings economically, globally, are tied to, uh, let's just say, the Vatican? Uh, Gerald Posner wrote about it right there. Um, God's Bankers, A History of Money and Power at the Vatican. So what we can identify are, A, for instance, the Federal Reserve is a private banking organization. What's a private bank doing controlling a republic? Republic, representing public. Okay, that's my personal interpretation of that word, republic. That means representing you, me. Okay, not a private entity. A government should have no strings to private banking. That's what the United States has had for over 100 years now. Since 1913, the Federal Reserve under Woodrow Wilson. It's a private bank. What is a private banking organization doing controlling the United States economy, its military, its media, its education? If, 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 if these things are foreign to you, uh, go to iantrottier.com, I-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R, and click on the article tabs, and there you will you, you can read extensively on the subject written by former Stanford Hoover fellow Anthony Sutton. Uh, and that's what I have urged many people to do. So anyway, uh, Gerald Posner by the Chicago Tribune, Immersal's People of an Investigator, and we opened that day up, we opened that discussion up, with Dr. Bandy Lee from Yale University. And she goes, as a, as a trained psychiatrist and as a teaching psychiatrist, she's, she's a, she teaches uh, the practice there at Yale. 
um, her book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And my issue here, folks, is you need to start identifying yourself as an American, not as a Democrat, not as a Republican, but as a, an American fighting to regain, because Paul Craig Roberts, who joined the program uh, a few years ago, said it right here, Americans have no idea, but they no longer have any constitutional rights. He's a former Reagan advisor, economic advisor. Uh, I believe he, well, he was a fellow at Oxford and also a fellow at Stanford. So very uh, intelligent, intelligent individual. Do we have constitutional rights? I open this show up by saying that we're being, they, the, our rights are being stripped from us left and right. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel it's your, it's, it's your right to, to wear a mask or not wear a mask, to have that choice? Do you feel it's your right to be injected with a vaccine or not be injected with a vaccine? If you're sick, go to the hospital and get treatment for it. Medicine is incredibly important. But is there a point where government oversteps that line? It's your body. Your body, your rights? Or your body, the government's rights? So where do, you, where do you draw the line? Where do you as a person draw the line and, and, and think things have changed since Jefferson uh, et al. wrote uh, that constitution, which I believe was published in, what, 1887? After the 1776 War on, uh, uh, War on Independence? Right? Declaration. Uh, have things changed? I argue that no, things have not changed. They've only gotten worse. And then you throw in the race rioting and looting of innocent uh, stores... And, and business owners, uh, what what is Wendy? Why was why was Wendy's burned to the ground? What did Wendy's have to do with this man dying? He was evading police. There's a sheriff in Atlanta, a black man, that says that those police were simply following protocol. So you can look at it one way. You can look at it another way. Was it was it racially motivated? I don't know. I'm not a racist. I have black friends. I have gay friends. I have Jewish friends. I like all people. People treat me right nice. I treat them right, and I treat them nice. Okay, it was it was actually happened. I, I was married to a Mexican a Mexican woman for four years. That was her name was of a native Mexican Oaxacan, uh, and uh, and so you know, is there racism in this country? That's up to interpretation. But making a violent protest and riot and looting and tearing down statues of historical figures. Now we need to be erecting statues that unify. So I have an issue with the violent aspect of these ridiculous... The protests are not ridiculous, but the violent rioting is, to me. It's absurd. So is it being funded from an outside source? And where is the funding coming from? Somebody's buying, somebody's buying bricks. Somebody's buying weapons. Somebody's buying the brass knuckles. Somebody's buying these things to... Right? So whether it's the people themselves or an organization that they're a part of, uh, uh, that's... Uh, Antifa, whatever it may be, uh, Act Blue, it, it's, that's, again, open interpretation. But what we do know is that America is under fire. And America is in crisis. And, my, and, and this, has been, this has been my argument now for, on Discussion of Truth now for, since I began this program. You need to get past the political divide. The politics in this country are controlled by the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations out of Manhattan, which controls Wall Street politically. And controlled, therefore, the step above them would be the Federal Reserve. Now, there's a trilateral commission. Uh, there's other organizations that they feed into that are that are obviously European. 
there's a new world order, one world agenda, United Nations uh, agenda, if you will, that's been underway for decades now. I don't have any problem with that. But what I have a problem with are taking away those U.S. constitutional rights. Because in my interpretation, I'm not legal, uh, legally trained, but in my interpretation, that's the, uh, the, 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 the most fitting, uh, free, if you will, liberous form and documented with the Bill of Rights and the amendments and all, uh, form of documentation that any government has ever received in the history, at least the history that we, we know of, 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 of modern, modern human beings. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't care where you're from. What, 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 what language you speak, what you look like, uh, I, I don't care. Uh, but if you're, you know, what, I, what I care about is peace and harmony and love and, and unification uh, and rights, of course. So uh, before I get into today's program, which I am late in bringing in uh, the guest, um, next week we'll be hosting William M. Arkin. An American political commentator, best-selling author, journalist, activist, blogger, and former United States Army soldier who has previously served as a military affairs analyst for, for the LA Times, Washington Post, and the New York Times. American coup, how a terrified government is destroying the Constitution. Bingo! <laughs> Perfect. I am Ian Trache. This is Discuss the Truth. You're on Winwood One. That is Miami Radio. Uh, that'll be next week's program. And, and to start out the, 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 new, the new month, we're bringing on J.P. Lindstrom and having a, have a conversation with, uh, whoop, there's, uh, uh, not today's guest. Uh, and we'll be having a conversation with, um, a, a roundtable discussion about racism in America. So today's uh, guests, without any further ado, because I know he is standing by, uh, in Hong Kong, Nick Binge. Um, and we'll be talking about artificial intelligence. And then the second hour, Crisis of Character, by Gary Byrne. He's a former Secret Service uniformed in division officer. Served federal law enforcement for nearly 30 years in the U.S. Air Force, Security Police, and Uniformed Division of the Secret Service. And most recently as a federal air marshal in his book, number one New York Times bestseller, Crisis of Character, he shared his experience as the first Secret Service employee compelled to testify in a criminal case against a sitting president. That would be Bill Clinton. So let's bring in via Skype Nick Binge to talk about artificial artificial intelligence. Uh, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. Uh, and uh, let's see if uh, we can bring in Nick right now. Iantrachet.com. Nick Binge, professor, yeah, author. Nick Binge, Nick, it's Ian Trottier. Welcome to Discuss Your Truth. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, pardon for the uh, for the delay. I'm a few minutes uh, a few minutes late. Thanks for joining the program. Uh, and uh, uh, for a moment here, uh, you're in Hong Kong, aren't are you? Are you not? You're in Hong Kong currently. I'm currently in Hong Kong. Yeah. But you are a British author. Uh, give listeners a description of who you are. Uh, introduce yourself, if you would, please. Sure. I'm uh, yeah. So I'm a British. I'm a British-born um, author uh, who is currently living in Hong Kong. Um, uh, I'm also out here um, as well as writing. I'm a teacher as well. So I teach uh, kind of creative writing, literature, um, those sorts of things um, uh, out here. Uh, and I've been out here for about five years. Um, and uh, my last book, Professor Everywhere, was. Just published earlier this year in 2020 um, it, here in, in Hong Kong and internationally, and uh, I mainly write kind of 
speculative fiction, so uh, things with uh, twinges of science fiction, um, maybe a little bit of horror, fantasy, things that make us look at the world in slightly different ways. Excellent, and I think that's incredibly important. And, and, and one of the reasons your book won an award, is that correct? Uh, it was um, it was uh, shortlisted for for an award, uh, an international uh, literary prize. Yeah, right. And, and 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 one of your one of the components of the book, and one of the reasons I reach out uh, to invite you on the program is artificial intelligence. And I think that uh, I, I, I'd like to go into that and obviously talk about talk about your book. Uh, do you speak Chinese? Um, I. Don't speak Chinese um, myself, though. Uh, um, if you if you read the book, you'll notice that there's actually quite a lot of exploration of of the Chinese language, the kind of etymology and and history of the Chinese language in the book. So, in order to in order to do that, um, despite the fact that I don't actually speak it fluently myself, I had to do quite a lot of research uh, into into that. Read it was it was an interesting process reading about a language that I don't speak uh, <laughs> and uh, and looking into the, the history of how that developed and, and reading books about it and talking to other Chinese speakers here in Hong Kong. Now that's impressive because, uh, I, well, uh, I won't I won't practice any of my Chinese. I, I've tried over the years to pick up a few. Uh, I, Ni Hao is a pretty common one. I've got that, uh, but I <laughs> won't go beyond that. Um, your book, by the way, for listeners, is available, Professor Everywhere, Nicholas Binge, B-I-N-G-E, is available on Amazon, Book Depository, uh, and other other sources. Um, uh, Nick, give a little background uh, as uh, where, what what took you to took you to Hong Kong, and and, and where are you from in England? Uh, so I um, I was I came to Hong Kong uh, primarily uh, as a teacher to teach. Um, I was working I was working in the UK in the in the Midlands in a place called Warwick, which is about an hour and a half or so outside of London, uh, kind of in the in the south middle part of England. Um, and uh, I, was, I was working there as a teacher as well um, uh, with my wife. Uh, and we were we were just looking for an opportunity to go and teach somewhere else, I suppose, and go and uh, experience some new things, experience some new cultures, uh, some new people, some new languages. Um, and that's what brought us out to Hong Kong. Um, and and it's been it's been a fascinating place. I mean, Hong Kong is a is a unique, one of the kind place, um, unlike any city I've ever been to in the world for a, for a whole host of reasons. I mean, uh, politically, culturally, um, historically, uh, it it's got this. It exists in this kind of weird limbo between between being its own country, but also not quite being its own country and having its own culture, but also not quite having its own culture. And, and because of those intersections, it's a really fascinating place to live. And what was it, uh, 1999, that, the, that, that it kind of broke away from that 100-year lease, I think it was, with the British yeah. uh, Empire? And, and have they uh, have they struggled, in, as Hong Kong struggled, in uh, uh, conforming to mainland China? Do they consider themselves uh, separate? Uh, some do, some don't. It's a complicated um, uh, political process. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this year. I'm sure everybody's seen that 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 in the past past 12 months or so, uh, it's been rocked by by some pretty heavy protests. Um, and the, the there's been 
there have been marches on the streets, there's been violence on the streets, um, and people with with really quite some legitimate concerns concerns about about uh, what the future of Hong Kong is going to look like and uh, whether it's going to be completely subsumed into into mainland China and, and stop being this kind of uh, unique city status that it once had or or whether it's going to be able to able to continue and and you've got a lot of people on both sides of the aisle um you've got a lot of people who who believe that it should it should remain autonomous you've got you've got a kind of small fringe section who believe it should be completely independent and they want to make a country of their own uh and then you've got people who believe that it is china that it's always, that it's always been china and that um and that to think anything else is ridiculous. So uh, living between those kind of three factions makes for a lot of political tension. Yeah. And and you, it sounds like you haven't had to conform language-wise. So is do the majority of people are they speaking English? Are they speaking both languages? What what do you find there? Uh, most, I would certainly most of Hong Kong speaks English. It's kind of a, a layover of of that colonial British um, era. Um, it's it's very much embedded into the society. Um, most, uh, local people, uh, most Hong Kongers will speak English and Cantonese and usually, usually Mandarin as well. Um, if they're going, if they're going to a school where they're, where they're learning that most of the, most of the students that I teach are trilingual, usually at the very least. Uh, some of them, some of them speak, might speak a bit of French and Spanish as well. But at the very least, they'll speak English, Cantonese, and Mandarin uh, pretty fluently, uh, just because of the nature of this place and, and the environment they grow up in. You know, they have they Cantonese is the local language of Hong Kong. It's the it's the, the the bare bones of it. It's the what they grow up speaking with their parents and their grandparents when they're really really young. And then English and Mandarin are the languages that they tend to get taught from quite a young age at school. So they've all got that kind of grounding in in three quite different languages. Um, which is fascinating. And is uh, is Hong Kong? Is it is it if I, 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 from the uh, Far East perspective? Would you say it's uh, it's certainly one of? Would you say it's uh, the financial center of the uh, or the Orient region in that in that regard? Well, that's interesting because it's it's been it used to be considered that it used to be considered uh, kind of one of these world cities, one of these financial centers. Um, and, and, and while it still is a financial center, kind of a, according to kind of the IMF and World Bank and things like that, um, there's been a huge shift, uh, as the whole world has seen in the past 10, 20 years of, um, where the real financial power is in, in China. So Hong Kong used to, used to be one of the, the, the most powerful financial cities in China. Now I think it's not even top five. Wow. Uh, I think we've got we've got Shenzhen that's literally just over the border. That's one that's now that's overtaken Hong Kong and is now one of the most powerful financial cities in Asia. Uh, Beijing, Shanghai, obviously, and then there's a couple more. Uh, so these cities in China are are exploding financially and have done so for the past 10, 15 years and are really taking over some of the more traditional financial hubs. And how does uh, how does how does Tokyo play into that mix? As far as strength, I think Tokyo's pretty high up. Yeah, I think Tokyo is one of the top in terms of all of Asia. I think the tops are uh, are kind of 
Beijing, Shanghai, Tokyo, um, off the top of my head. Um, so, so Japan's pretty strong as well. I think uh, Korea, Seoul probably plays into that um, as well at some point. But, but if you look at the top 10 um, biggest cities financially in Asia, you'll see it, that probably a good half of those, if not more, are Chinese. And Nick, what's your perspective on uh, what's how's life? Uh, I mean, I'm going I mean, to assume that uh, I, I can imagine how it's changed because uh, globally, most people have been affected in a similar way. But uh, from your from your view and where you're at in Hong Kong, how how has life changed under this uh, COVID nineteen uh, uh, pandemic? Uh, well, we we um, by, by virtue of where we are geographically being being kind of uh, essentially China and that and that um, southern border with it, we uh, we got hit pretty pretty early on uh, in this whole process, um, and so we went into the so Hong Kong did experience kind of the same sorts of things that other people experienced with lockdowns and quarantines and and all of those sorts of things, but but once again by virtue of kind of being in the same in the right in the right place to get it early, which is in China, but also by being its own city, so it was able to close borders. It was able to do things slightly differently than China did. Um, it shut down um, the virus pretty quickly, uh, especially considering the amount of traffic that it gets coming through um, coming through this city. Uh, so we're at the point now where essentially everything is everything has opened up again. There hasn't been a there wow. haven't really been any local cases for weeks and weeks and weeks. You might have one popping up here and there, but it's um, it's been it's been mainly dealt with. And I think that's that's partly by virtue of it it being dealt with uh, seriously, um, and partly by virtue of it just hitting us a little bit earlier. And so uh, the the kind of the peak and the uh, it, and it dissipating um, happened a little bit earlier. But I will also say that um, it's been an in, it's been really interesting being here and comparing the reaction of uh, Eastern nations, uh, particularly, um, versus uh, some of the more prominent Western nations uh, like the UK, like the US, uh, and how they're being dealt with. I think one of the things that I deal with in my book is that that um, that cultural clash. Um, between Eastern and Western approaches to certain things. Uh, and I do it by kind of jumping into different dimensions where different uh, kind of cultures exist uh, uh, side by side or, um, uh, or in different ways. But, but the idea is, is that kind of Eastern countries, places like Hong Kong, places like China, have kind of inbuilt into the way that they see the world far more of a, a sense of collectivism and far more of a sense of collective responsibility compared to um western countries where the the, the central ideology of most western countries particularly the uk and the us is um individualism it's this belief in the individual you know you you pull yourself up by your bootstraps you look after yourself uh obviously you look after your friends and family as well but it's all about you know the power of your own human will um, whereas a lot of people, um, 
over here don't don't just literally don't look at the world that way. They look at the world through the eyes of being part of a collective. And so when it came to, you know, everyone needs to everyone needs to follow these rules. Everyone needs to wear masks. Everyone needs to um, do this, that, or the other in order to defeat this. Um, everyone did, uh, and there was no there was there was almost no one who didn't. Uh, and if you didn't, you would seem very, 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 very odd. Uh, whereas I feel like talking to people, particularly in the in the UK, uh, just because it's a context I know a little bit better, a little bit better, but you see a little bit on the US, that there's a lot of people there who say, well, I I shouldn't have to do this. You know, I, this is impeaching on my personal freedoms to have to stay in. This is impeaching on my whatever to to have to stay in. And that that attitude. Has, doesn't really exist. I, I can't imagine a Hong Konger turning around and saying, "Oh, having to having to stay inside for having to be in lockdown is a is an assault on my personal freedoms," because they don't necessarily think in that same way. And I think that 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 difference between that collectivism versus that individualism has helped certain Asian countries perhaps defeat or suppress the virus a little bit better. Right. Yeah, that is, so so why is that? And and I, and I get exactly what you're what what you're talking about. Um and I, and I, and I would concur. I, I think the 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 western uh, uh culture if you will is uh is a little more they try to be well, I, I don't know if self-sufficient is the the right phrase to be using, but uh, but certainly uh, there is um, there is more of that mentality of do it yourself um, than and, and and of course than what you're talking about um, in 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 the the Asi- Asiatic countries where it, it, they're doing things more collectively. As for instance. Um, I lived in San Francisco for a number of years and uh, would love going through Chinatown, but uh, these people seem to they, they seem to work um, they worked together uh, more um, uh, collectively than uh, than than an American that would uh, that would again uh, attempt to do things uh, do things on their own. So um, so. So, and you're saying that uh, that the the virus has basically been uh, uh, is is a, a, a really a non-issue at the moment. It sounds like in Hong Kong, and and that is because of uh, this collaborative communal effort of everyone to get on board. Um, why do you think that is? Is that is that um, why do you think that is? What's what's the difference there? I think it's a. It, I think in order to understand that, you have to go way, way, way back, centuries, centuries, millennia back, even. And I think it's 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 just an inherent. Um, it's an inherent difference in the cultural outlook um, uh, and the way in which these cultures are run, and it can be seen across almost every level of society. I mean, you're talking about them working together collectively you know working for family uh is is seen not just as a good thing it's seen as some uh something that's that's often expected i mean uh as you compare it to a slightly more um western approach i suppose uh you know the the idea is in a family you might have children and then they grow up and then they uh and then when they leave school or they go to university or whatever um you'd expect them to go and you know find their own job and make their own way and and create their own career and then, you know, go off and, uh, 
do their own thing. Um, uh, and, and I wouldn't imagine, if, for example, if my, if my dad offered me a job working for him, I, I would uh, think, uh, I, I would think there's no way I'm going to do that. Um, whereas, uh, the expectation very much here is, uh, the reason that you're going to get a job is so that you can come back and take care of your family and live with your family and people, people live, but most people here, um, live with their, with their grandmothers and grandpa and grandfathers and aunts and uncles and things like that. And the expectation is that you go off, uh, and you make some money and you come back and then you take care of the rest of your family and you all live together. Uh, you don't go off and make your own way in that sense. Um, and that, that can be seen across, across all levels of community and culture. Um, and I, I, I I'm not sure that I can speak to exactly what the cause of it is. I don't know if there is one specific cause. I think it's just, it's the way that culture has developed over time. I think you see individualism in Western countries coming out of uh, the some of the political systems, uh, things like Things like the French Revolution, things like the establishment of the United States, um, a lot of that narrative, a lot of that idea of kind of freedom and equality for men, you know, we believe all it's, you know, all, all men are equal and all men, uh, and this idea of kind of having a, having a destiny, even the idea of the American dream is very much... Um, rooted in this idea of individualism, of one person achieving, right? Uh, so you can see it in those cultures as well. Uh, um, I don't know, I think it's just something that goes back a very, very long way. I'm not, enough of a, I'm not enough of a social and cultural historian to be able to speak exactly to where it comes from. Yeah, uh, a, a good a good thought. Anyway, so let's get into um, let's get into your book, uh, Nick. So so a segue perhaps could be um, due to the lockdown, and uh, of course now in the United States anyway, and I think it spread through various cities uh, internationally. Um, but the uh, initially it was uh, kind of January February the introduction of the virus and then a you know a, a, a lot seemed like March there was a, a major lockdown um, uh, throughout uh, sweeping throughout throughout the United States anyway and most of the world um, Spain Italy uh, and uh, and so because of that um, various technologies uh, have uh, been uh, uh, introduced um, and uh, emphasized. Uh, one of them, of course, would be one that we used on this program last week uh, uh, to host two guests, and that was Zoom. So kind of a, uh, again, to use the word collaborative uh, 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 group meeting uh, setting. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's kind of made uh, made a push into people's homes and businesses and, and way of life uh, uh, because of the, the lockdown. Um, and, and so Professor Everywhere, uh, the name, uh, this is Nicholas Binge, uh, uh, British uh, author based in, in Hong Kong, as guest of mine today. Um, uh, British, uh, excuse me, Professor Everywhere, um, uh, the title of your book, uh, of course, would allude, I think, to, well, why don't you, Nick, why don't you, why don't you explain, uh, explain a little bit, uh, an introduction to, 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 the, to the book you've written. Okay, so the book is, um, the book is uh, about 
Uh, so I talked a little bit about that cultural, uh, those, that cultural clash uh, a moment ago. The book is about a young uh, uh, Hong Kong Chinese uh, student, um, uh, a girl called Chloe, who uh, goes to uh, a university uh, in the UK. She goes to a, a, an English university, uh, the University of Warwick, uh, just so happens to be the university I went to. Uh, I just picked somewhere that I, that I could picture in my head. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, it, there she, um, she's excited to go there, uh, partly because, um, you know, uh, I think uh, in, because Hong Kong has these um, colonial backgrounds, uh, there's, there's, there's still some hang-ups to do with the way that, that Hong Kongers view places like Britain and America uh, uh, in this almost kind of uh, elevated way, as if as if going to a British university or an American university is 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 the ultimate achievement or goal. And I wanted to explore the way in which that might not be the case, or that might be a little bit disillusioning or a little bit disappointing. Uh, and she is a little bit disappointed when she gets there, uh, until she discovers this um, enigmatic professor um, called Professor Cranus who nobody really seems to know what he does, but he seems to be this kind of ultimate academic. And she becomes a little bit obsessed with him. And then in doing so, falls into a, a kind of bizarre world uh, of kind of doors and labyrinths and corridors uh, where um, he is working on some experiment that essentially opens opens up doors to different universes, to different worlds where things are played out in slightly different ways. Uh, so for example, where, where, um, the dominant kind of force for empire was perhaps not the British empire, but was perhaps uh, a Chinese empire and how that might've changed the world and how it might've looked different or how it might've looked different if kind of, uh, Africa had been the primary kind of cultural force rather than, rather than America being the primary cultural force in the world. Um, and so it allowed me to kind of just explore a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different technologies, a variety of different ways, as well as, you know, being a bit of an exciting page turner, uh, not really knowing. There's a lot of kind of government conspiracy, not knowing who to trust, um, uh, betrayals and, and all of those sorts of things running through it. Um, so, so it's designed to be fun as well as, as well as getting you to, uh, think about some of these cultural technological ideas. And the quote, one of the quotes here uh, uh, that sticks out to me, Lawrence Cray, uh, Gray, author of Cop Show Heaven, a minefield of literature, a sea of alternatives, a mental and moral workout. So given what you've just said, uh, it sounds like Chloe uh, being introduced to the world of this, of this professor um, is uh, it, it definitely on a, uh, a, 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 a she gets put through a mental workout. How does um, how does how does how do you incorporate um, uh, or, or rather how does Chloe, uh, Chloe uh, how does she uh, uh, deal with uh, artificial intelligence and what does she discover with uh, with the use of, of that technology in her in her adventures? Um, so. There's there's a variety of different uh, technologies uh, that take place. Um, I, I explore a, a little bit into science, kind of quantum theory and things like that when it comes to the different dimensions and, and the 
new worlds theory and stuff like that. Um, uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, um, it's not it's not overtly on the surface of the novel. It's not it's not doesn't uh, define kind of some of the worlds she goes to. Um, she could have perhaps used artificial intelligence more in working out some of the mysteries. Um, I think I think one of the one of the keys of of the book um, is exploring all the things about our world that we that are invisible that we take for granted that we um, that we uh, assume or that we forget about. But the the little things that run underneath our world, how language works, how a variety of things work that we never look into or that we never study, but are, but are there, are ticking away behind us. And I think that's perhaps one of the links to um, what you might call artificial intelligence, uh, particularly in our world, mm -hmm. um, where, I mean, when people think about artificial intelligence, they tend to think about, you know, the, the, the big kind of, uh, you know, the matrix or like Terminator style, like big robot that can think for itself and wants to take over right. the world. Well, realistically, what that, what, what artificial intelligence looks like in this day and age is, is, is algorithms and machine learning and, uh, over certain aspects that have always been done by humans to machines. And when you look into how much that actually happens in our world, um, the more you look into it, the more you discover that it's everywhere. It's almost completely ubiquitous. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize until relatively recently, a couple of years ago, I was reading a book about, about algorithms and machine learning um, that uh, a large part of uh, the criminal justice system in the UK and the US is uh, is run by algorithms now, uh, with humans not involved. Uh, so deciding whether or not people get bail. Wow. Um, and things like that. Yep, they they plug it into a machine. The machine runs runs it through, and they tell you the answer. Um, uh, uh, and elements of uh, medicine, even. I know they've got they've got uh, machines in the in the US that decide. That they just plug in the data and the machines decide uh, who gets to the front of the queue and who's to the back of the queue based on kind of priority. Um, now it's done for efficiency, uh, and uh, the idea in the criminal justice system initially was it was done for in order to reduce bias, right? If you can just plug the raw data in, then right. you're not going to get the same level of human bias, and yet. What they're finding bizarrely is you're you're getting this thing called coded coded bias, where um, because of the way that it's been built, um, it actually ends up being more biased uh, than it was before. So, so a great example was um, uh, there was a system that was using facial recognition, and, and facial recognition, uh, the way that the system was designed and built, um, used primarily white faces in order to build mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. So the facial recognition software was much, much better at, better at categorizing white faces than it was uh, people of color. Uh, it was much better. It could, it could tell my face, for example, um, much more easily uh, out of a lineup or out of something like that than it could uh, someone who was black or someone who was Asian. Um, and as such, because of the way that it was built, uh, what was happening is is running the criminal justice system through these algorithms was actually causing a disproportionate amount, an even higher disproportionate amount of people of color to get 
poor sentencing to get um, to, to not get bail and things like that versus people who are white purely because of the way that the system was coded. Uh, and so we're handing a lot, a lot of the way, a lot of the way the world works over to machines. A really surprising amount of the way the world works over to machines. And I think without fully realizing how they work, uh, and without fully realizing what some of the pitfalls are there. Yeah, that's that's loaded. What you've, especially with these. Uh, with these rioting, the, the protests that turn turn into riots, uh, that's uh, you're, you're, you know you're, you're you're making an interesting point, um, and uh, these technologies are uh, being designed uh, primarily, uh, I would assume, uh, certainly using uh, white uh, white white people. Um, so that's that's something I hadn't even. Even considered, Nicholas, so you brought up a really, really good point here. Getting back to uh, Professor Everywhere with with Chloe, what are some of the other technologies she's discovering uh, through these doors, and um, and what is she concluding? If she's concluding anything, has she drawn any conclusions? What is she concluding? Um, so some of the technologies are uh, some of the technologies are very very futuristic. They're um, they're opportunities for me to play with sci-fi a little bit. Um, so and 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 not all of them are explained. She jumps she jumps into a world at one point that's 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 um, uh, gives me an opportunity to play with the idea of of um, Afrofuturism, which is essentially the the concept of uh, taking taking uh, African cultural uh norms and, and imagining it in a in a very futuristic sci-fi setting um if you ever seen the film black black panther that's that's an excellent summary of afrofuturism uh but um so so also you know technology like flying cars um all the classic things that you would see in in your your, your classic kind of golden age sci-fi you know teleporting opening doors all of those sorts of things. Uh, but what was interesting to me to explore what that would look like in a different cultural context, because all the classic sci-fi, all the really classic sci-fi, the golden age of sci-fi, Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov, stuff like that, it's all in a very Western context. It's all really populated by by white Western people in the future. There's, there's not that same level of consideration for what that might look like for, um, for a Chinese culture or for an African culture or, or for a, another kind of Asian culture. Um, so that was fun playing with that technology a little bit. Um, what conclusions does Chloe come to? Um, well, by the end of the book, I think it quickly becomes less about the worlds that she is exploring and it becomes more about why she is exploring them and her relationship with the professor who is the title of the book. Um, and what becomes quite clear is that nothing, it's not just being done for the sake of human curiosity. There's um, uh, ulterior motives. Uh, and, um, and I'm not going to go into what those are now uh, because uh, hopefully someone that listens to the show might want to pick up the book and I don't want to spoil it for them. Uh, but I suppose the conclusion might be that progress very rarely happens for progress's sake. 
uh, in the world. Uh, it's something I believe very, very rarely. Historically, I, I don't think progress really happens purely for progress's sake. There's almost always an ulterior motive. There's always, almost always someone trying to make a buck or someone trying to uh, uh, establish some sort of power over somebody else or someone uh, trying to get a, a one-up up over somebody else. Uh, and so I think that's important to be aware of when we see progress in our modern age. Um, it's important to look at new technologies. It's important to look at new things like Zoom, for example, like you pointed out a moment ago, um, and take a, take, a, take a second to take a step back and think, okay, so why, why is this here? Why is this being offered to us? Zoom is a wonderful technology. It's anyone in the world can get it for free. You don't have to pay for it. Um, what, why is that? What's the motive behind it? Um, and it was discovered relatively recently, uh, uh, in the past few months, there was a, there was a big scandal about, um, the fact that the, the information that you share over zoom, the conversations that you have over zoom, they're not necessarily encrypted. Um, and that they could be being recorded. They could be being kept somewhere for whatever purposes, marketing purposes, big data purposes. Um, and so I think a, a conclusion, if anything, to come to with the discovery of wonderful new technologies is just to always be aware that you can't divorce them from the humans that create and use them. And humans rarely do things purely for the altruistic sake of progress. Very well said. So let's, let's take, as we've got a few minutes left here, Nick, uh, let's let's take that concept here of exactly what you're saying here. Uh, uh, this this isn't uh, this isn't necessarily a, a natural occurrence. Many times this is by design, um, and, and 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 many times it's it's ending, ending up profiting somebody. So who's right? Who's who's profiting from from ownership of Zoom or or what it may be uh, investment of, of any type? So so if we take that approach and apply that to uh, your classes, for instance. In, in Hong Kong, and, and, and we're taking the, 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 the Asian culture that is um, a, a different frame of mind than UK or US, whereas US, UK, do it yourself, um, and maybe I can apply uh, question authority, um, and then to what you're experience, experiencing in the, these Asian cultures, uh, we're exactly in Hong Kong right now, uh, whereas people are saying, okay, well, uh, uh, government saying it's a threat, close doors, masks, close up, and boom, that virus is gone. Uh, taking, taking what you just said about, uh, about technology and, well, who's possibly benefiting from it, um, how, how are you, are you seeing, uh, are you seeing in your, in the classroom, any of your students, um, questioning motive in that, in that regard? Does that make sense to you? Uh, kind of a, Yeah. Um, and I would say that I, I am, um, and I would say that that's part of, it's, it's kind of circling all the way back down bound to what I was talking about at the beginning. Yeah. It's part of the cultural context that is Hong Kong. Um, particularly, I think I am more than I would be if I was teaching, um, in mainland China, um, and I think there's a what 
what I talked about of those differences between the the, the East and West and what you've just dis- discussed um, is uh, is part of the reason for all the tensions. Yeah, that's part of why it's so palpable. You've got this whole generation of kids who have been brought up um, being told, being taught these Western values because of the British being here and because of the number of expats being here and the way that the education system is working here, which which tends to kind of like I was saying before, almost overly value people who are British or American and white and things like that just because of the cultural history. Um, so you've got a whole generation of kids who are being taught uh, these Western values, which is, like you said, you know, be a skeptic, question things, uh, uh, look out for yourself, don't don't take uh, on face value what, what the government tells you or what people tell you. Um, so they, they've been brought up thinking like that and being curious and being uh, having kind of uh, wanting to inquire into these types of things. And yet they look into their their future and they look across the border and they see that they're being confronted with mm-hmm. um, a cultural context, which is very, very different from the one that they were brought up with. Um, I would say that that if you are currently born and brought up, but I'm not, I'm not going to speak to whether it's a good thing or a bad thing because I, because I think that that's, that's a, I think this is the wrong point to take. Uh, I think they're, they're cultural differences. But if you're if you're born and brought up in in mainland China now, and you go to school in mainland China, uh, you're you're not going to be brought up to uh, question and be a skeptic and kind of uh, tear things apart in the same way. Uh, in fact, you're probably going to be brought up to see that that's that's not only a waste of time, but it's act it's counteractive to do that, right? Uh, so I'm working with kids who have been brought up to think that they should do that, and yet they're now being told that they're being pulled into a society and into a country where that's frowned upon. So we're right we're right at the crossroads at the moment. It's why we've seen protests for the past 12 months. We're right at the crossroads of this um, clash between Western values and Eastern values in Hong Kong. I think that's, that's one of the reasons why... Uh, it's been so tense. So I would say, yes, my kids, the kids that I teach, certainly yep. do. Um, but that's part of the issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's let's close out with a little appetizer for uh, for listeners uh, with with your book. Um, wet 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 listeners' appetite, if you will, uh, Nick, with uh, with something they can find uh, when they when they when they purchase your book. Uh, so my my book is for anybody who loves um, a good science fiction uh, page turner, but it's also for anybody who wants to uh, learn more about um, language, so uh, etymology uh, and the, the 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 history of of both English uh, and uh, Chinese uh, is explored in quite a lot of detail in it. So if you're passionate about language or linguistics in any way. Uh, it's a perfect book for you. And it's also a book if you want to think a little bit more deeply about some of the things that we've been discussing today, uh, culture and where it comes from and what happens when what happens when cultures clash and what happens when uh, cultures come together. Sounds like you've compiled a real fun literary book there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Nicholas Spinge from Hong Kong. Uh, you can find his book, Professor Everywhere, at Amazon Book Depository. 
uh, give it a quick uh, Google, if you will, in your search engine. Uh, Nick, thanks for taking the time to join us uh, and have a wonderful day. Looking forward to uh, keeping in touch with you. Thank you very much, Ian. Appreciate it. So Nick was very, very kind and uh, agreed to join the program. Uh, look, 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 like I've said since I started this program, if you go to iantrotrade.com, you, you'll find a list of all the past guests on the program. Uh, folks, we've been very fortunate. We've had some incredible, incredible, great people to join the program. Professor, program, professor everywhere. Sounds like a phenomenal, very fun book to get into. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, it, it caught my eye because, uh, it caught my eye because here's, here's someone who's incorporating, uh, a future, a futuristic look. Okay. Look, I, I, I you know, I, I, theories are theories, facts are facts. But if you look at, for instance, in 1984, this was uh, written by uh, another British mind, uh, and he's thinking futuristically um, in how the world could be. So that's that's part of the beauty of the human mind, right? And what you can't necessarily get from a computer or from an algorithm. Um, I, I had no idea that uh, these legal decisions are being run through um, algorithms. Um, yeah, if... if, if so it's to to get a to get an actual human being to uh, cipher through things is becoming uh, increasingly harder. Can we can we conclude that? I don't know. More difficult. Uh, I don't know. Um, Nicholas Bench, folks. Uh, quote from him: I'm an English literary teacher, lived and taught in various countries. I currently reside in Hong Kong, a dead volcano in the South China Sea that is both definitely part of and not part of China. We heard that from him. Uh, in the past uh, 30 minutes. At the same time, I know it's confusing because between teaching and teaching, I write and read. I workshop with other authors in Hong Kong, from short story writers to screenwriters to nonfiction writers. I myself write mainly horror, fantasy, and science fiction, though dabble in and out of other genres when the ideas hit. So that's Nicholas Binge, uh, right off uh, right off of his website, uh, binge-writing.com. Um, and again, you know, close out here with saying that's, that's, again, that's just, that's just part of the beauty of the ability for the human mind to develop, grow, innovate, think, prosper. We, we all have that ability regardless of ethically or ethically or ethic, uh, ethnic, ethnic, eth, the ethnicity that we inherited um, our ancestry, what it may be, uh, you're getting into these hot topics of racism right now, but we are all human beings and we all have that same ability to contribute and help this race, the human race, prosper and grow. And, uh, and so that's just one wonderful uh, contribution, in my opinion, to, to, toward that. So I close out here um, and I'll be back momentarily with uh, Gary Byrne. He's a former Secret Service Uniformed Division Officer under the Bill Clinton administration. This is Discussions of Truth. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier, and I'll be right back. <laughs> 